The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I pray that in each of our hearts that you will create in us a spirit that is ready to worship you. And in this time specifically, Lord, I pray that you will create in us a heart that is ready to hear from you through your word. And this is a holy time. It's one that I don't take lightly, Lord, as a spokesman of you and your word. And I pray that our church won't take it lightly in, in hearing from your word. Oh, how easy it would be to be trivial or jokey in this time. But that would not match the severity of what's taking place in this hour. So Lord, I, I ask humbly that you would speak through me in this time. Lord, there's nothing great about me that would put me here above others speaking in this moment, Lord. And so Lord, I just ask that you would put me in the background, that your word would go forth in clarity that hearts would be transformed by the power of your spirit, that our affections would be stirred for you as we remember Christ, his work for us. Help us to tremble as we handle your word and receive it. And pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Philippians chapter 2. Well, beginning in verse 1, the great philosopher and theologian of the 4th century, Augustine, was once asked to list the central principles of the Christian life. And this was his, this was his answer. Central principles of the Christian life. He responded, the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is humility. There's a story told of George Washington riding his horse one day. And he came upon a group of men trying to remove a large, heavy log from the road to clear its path. And off to the side, he saw a corporal standing there giving orders to the men. The corporal not recognizing who Washington was as he rode up on his horse. And Washington climbed off his horse and asked the corporal why he wasn't helping the men move the log. And the corporal responded, I'm the corporal. I give orders. And Washington didn't reply. He simply went and helped the men move the log from the road. And he quietly mounted his horse and he rode over to the corporal and said, Corporal, the next time your men need help, send for the commander-in-chief. It's told of another time Washington and his friends were riding their horses and they came to a place where they had to leap over a wall, a stone, a stone wall. And in the process, one of the horses knocked over some of the stones. And Washington was concerned and said, we, we should probably replace those stones. And his friend says, oh, don't worry about it. Leave it for the farmer. And they rode on and continued to bother Washington. And after they finished riding, Washington went back and 
carefully began to rebuild the wall and place the stones there. And one friend said, what are you doing? You, you are, you're too big for that. You're the President of the United States. You're too big for that. And Washington replied, on the contrary, I am just the right size. Humility is one of those attributes that everyone loves seeing, but no one can admit to practicing themselves. C.S. Lewis defined humility like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. The essence of humility is forgetting about yourself. In other words, if you walk around talking about how great you are or how great your ideas are or how much you are needed, then you are most definitely not a humble person but a self-focused person. This is a prideful centering of life around your strengths and your perceived greatness. But the opposite of arrogance, namely self-pity, is just as prideful as arrogance. If you're always walking around talking about how bad you are and you can never do anything good and you never have any good ideas and no one needs me and nobody likes me and everybody hates me and guess I'll go eat worms. Well, guess who at that point you are focused on most? Yourself. Lewis says true humility is not degrading yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. True humility is forgetting about yourself. True humility is thinking of others and thinking of yourself less. And Paul is going to argue in our text today why such humility is absolutely critical for the church. Do you believe that? How often do we think of humility being absolutely critical for the church? That's what Paul is going to argue today. In our studies of Philippians, we've been going through verse by verse of Philippians, and we've seen Paul being greatly concerned with making sure that the church is unified. He wants a healthy, unified church. At the end of chapter 1, Paul calls the church to live a life worthy of the gospel, he says. And what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? And Paul says it looks like not only do we talk the talk of what we believe, we walk the walk. That our life measures up, it, it matches up with the truth of the gospel. And how often do you hear sermons about unity in the church? And Paul is going to stress the importance of unity, whether we recognize its importance or not. A church lives worthy of the gospel. This is what we studied the last time we were in Philippians. The church lives worthy of the gospel when she stands for truth against the winds of culture and when she strides together in the midst of those winds. Churches have the holy task of standing for God's truth and proclaiming for God's truth in a world that hates God's truth. That was last time. We stand and we strive side by side in unity for the sake of the gospel. 
That's how he concluded chapter 1. And so what would you expect Paul to say at the beginning of chapter 2 next to these people in the church? Well, look with me in Luke, I mean, Luke, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And Paul's right there. Paul begins the next section. He's, he's just encouraged the church to be unified for the sake of the gospel. And he begins the next section by saying, so, in other words, it's like, to summarize, in summary, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ in the church, if there's any love in the church, any participation in the Spirit, fellowship, if there's any sympathy and love for one another, if any of these things exist in the church, and these are good things, right? I mean, Abner Creek, do you, do you this morning, are you this morning encouraged by Christ and His work for you? Are you comforted by God's love for you today? Is there participation or, or fellowship in the Spirit among us today? Like last week, we celebrated a sweet time of fellowship together as we gathered around the Lord's Supper. Paul says, is there any sympathy and love for one another? I mean, as we've had recent deaths associated with our church body. Sympathy and love. All these things are, are great things. All these things are good and necessary things, but they are not enough. Paul says in verse 2, complete my joy, if these things are there, complete my joy. In other words, all those qualities in the church are good and they bring Paul joy, but his joy is not complete. What is it that will complete Paul's joy? How will his joy be completed? Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. By having the same love, by being in full accord or alignment together, by being of one mind. In other words, complete my joy, church, by being unified. You may think, oh, wait a minute, Paul just ended chapter 1 with an emphasis on unity. Shouldn't he move on to something else? But he doesn't move on. He stays right on unity. I mean, in chapter 1 he said, stand firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side. And now in chapter 2, he says, be the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord. Why so much emphasis on unity? Is it that important? I mean, aren't we just the people who come together on Sunday, maybe gather on Wednesday, pass each other, say, hey, how you doing? Paul is so much more. Is there a spirit of Unity. What is the big deal? Well, Paul stresses this because he knows its importance, even if we forget about its importance. I mean, unity in the church is one of those things you may not think about a lot until you don't have it, and then you notice it, like big time. You notice when a church is divided. Have you ever served in a company that has an unclear vision? 
maybe at your job, your, somewhere you volunteer, unclear vision, or a business where the leadership is divided. Everyone seems to be on separate pages. Everyone's pulling in different directions. What happens when that is the case? Well, growth is stunted, right? I mean, you can't get any traction because everyone is pulling in different directions. You don't have any sustainability because you have no consistency. You can't get any momentum because the direction is always changing. The same is true for a church. When a church is not unified, it leads to confusion, it leads to power struggles, it leads to a shattered vision. What are we doing? What are we here for? What are we about? Everyone's saying different things. What should we be? What should we become? Who were we? Who are we? Paul emphasizes unity in the church. Because without unity, the church cannot fulfill her, her mission of glorifying God by making disciples the way God intends. Cannot happen the way God intends unless the church is unified. And remember, the unity Paul stresses is a unity around the gospel. I went into last time about, I mean, there are churches that are unified, but unified over petty things, right? What are we going to be concerned about being unified over? Paul is concerned that we are unified primarily around the gospel. So Abner Creek, I ask you a question this morning. What is your identity? What are you known for? I mean, churches are known for all sorts of things. And they identify as all sorts of things. What's the first thing you would say about Abner Creek? And you should see our children's program. It is awesome. Or you got to come hear our choir. Second to none. Or man, you should really hear our preacher. He really pushes the edge. You got to hear our worship band, man. They are really good. You got to check out our youth ministry. It's so energetic. I mean, you hear people identify their churches all the time, right? You got to come. You got to see. You got to hear. You got to see what's going on. And some of these things can be really good things. What's your identity? What is Abner Creek Baptist Church's identity? And just everything in me wants to encourage and just push you toward emphatically stressing being unified for the gospel. I mean, what if Abner Creek Baptist Church was known as the church in the community that emphatically loved the gospel, unashamed in announcing that? I mean, what if it was the headline for this church? You know, that's not a flashy church, but man, they love the gospel. They love seeing people get saved by the gospel. They love seeing people grow in the gospel. And so, man, they're always proclaiming the gospel. And they're always discipling people in the gospel. And they're always training up people to know the gospel, to love the gospel, to share the gospel. And that's Paul's exhortation in this text. Once again, he repeats himself about unity around the gospel because it's that important. 
But unity in the church just doesn't happen. Like if there's no button to hit cruise control and we will cruise into a nice unified church around the gospel. It doesn't happen that way. Unity takes intentional effort. Unity requires the right mindset, effort and mindset, work and perspective. Unity in the church is a quality that must be worked for and guarded if it's to hang around. In the last text at the end of chapter 1, Paul emphasized the importance of unity of the church as, as, as we stand against various attacks from the culture. But it's also important that we intentionally work for unity within the body as we live together. It's kind of like going on vacation with your extended family. You share a house. And you love each other and you love being together, but you wouldn't want to live that way the rest of your life. The church is a group of people who love each other and we live among each other. And because of this, Paul says there should better be intentional effort so that the fellowship among us remains sweet and encouraging and unified instead of driving each other crazy and being divided. Effort and mindset. So how do we do this? How do we live together in unity as a church and not drive each other up the wall? Is that question that Paul answers with the rest of this text. Here's the main point of the passage and the main point of the rest of the sermon. Pursue unity by pursuing humility. Pursue unity by pursuing humility. A unified church is a humble church. Such humility is absolutely critical if a church is to be unified. A church will never be unified so long as its members are self-centered, self-indulging, self-absorbed. A church that's unified is a church filled with humble people who are primarily concerned about the health of the church, not about themselves. And this humility is not only to be exercised within the church, but in all of life. I mean, as an individual, are you a humble person? If you are, don't say it. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So we know it's important to be humble, but how do we get there? How do we pursue humility in our life? And Paul gives us four ways in this text. First, pursue humility by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Pretty clear, right? I love when a point in my sermon gets to match exactly what the text says. Point one, pursue humility by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Remember in chapter one when Paul talks about others preaching the gospel. In chapter one, Paul mentions these other people and Paul's in prison. These other people, they're preaching the gospel. But he says some of them have bad motives. In verse 17 of chapter one, he actually says some of them are preaching out of selfish ambition. The same word that he now uses in chapter two. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. He said, some of these guys, they're preaching from selfish ambition. And in chapter 1, he said, 
But whether in pretense or in truth, as long as Christ is proclaimed in that, I will rejoice. And and for Paul, the bottom line is, if Christ is being proclaimed, he can rejoice. But that doesn't mean that Paul is passing over these people and their sin. Selfish ambition being a sin, he's not passing over. And you say, well, how do you know he's not passing that over? Because in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. He didn't pass it over. He's he's addressing it right now in chapter 2. Selfish ambition and conceit is the act of pridefully advancing yourself or your cause. Taking pride in your greatness or ability. It's an attitude that says, I'm going to do this to make me look good. I'm going to do this to advance my own agenda. I'm going to do this to ensure that I'm heard first or I'm seen first or to ensure that I'm first. And notice Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Before you act in the church or in your personal life, ask the question, why am I doing this? Examine your motives and search your heart. Ask yourself, am I doing this primarily to advance me and my cause, or am I doing this for the good of the church or my family or organization, whoever you're interacting with? And Paul says, if it's the former of doing it for yourself, Paul says, do not do it. I'll never forget interviewing a girl for a position at Chick-fil-A last year. And I asked her, I said, so tell me some of your strengths. You know, your work experience in the past. Tell me some of your successes. What, what are some things you're good at? And she paused a long time, kind of looked up at the sky. And then she said, very excitingly, well, I'm a humble person. If you have to advertise your humility, newsflash, you don't have any. And I told her that. I'm just kidding, I didn't tell her that. (laughs) Selfish ambition and conceit always focuses on the individual rather than the whole. Pride has no place in the church. Pride is the great divider in the church. When we get on our high horse and say, it's got to be this way and my way or no way, it divides the church. There are no big shots or know-it-alls here. Not even the pastor. And just as a side note, this is why healthy leadership in a church, Paul prescribes as a plurality of men or elders. Because no pastor has all the control or the wisdom or the authority. Nor should it be like that. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's how we pursue humility first. Second, we pursue humility by counting others more significant than ourselves. Counting others more significant than ourselves. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's the key theme, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Pursuing humility means you stop doing some things, namely you stop selfish ambition, And pursuing humility means you start doing other things like counting others more significant than yourself. 
In doing this, counting others more significant than yourselves, you intentionally focus your mind to take the focus off of yourself and to place it on others. When you count others as more significant than yourselves, you are literally thinking and acting in a way that says, I value your opinion, I value your presence, I value your thoughts and concerns above mine. Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, once said this, It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. I almost started the sermon like that, but Collier wouldn't let me. Just kidding. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Now, we cringe at the thought of saying that. But functionally, do we live as though we believe that about ourselves? I mean, do we believe that we are most significant by the way that we dominate a room? Or take over discussion or cut, cut others off in conversation? Refuse to receive critique from others or forcefully push our own agenda like our input is all that matters or our idea is the brightest? Like this church or this endeavor will not survive without me. Do we functionally believe what we cringe at him saying? Or are we open to someone else being more significant in the room? Someone else having more insight than I do? Can we say the three-word phrase dreaded by all, I don't know. But I know someone who does, and he does, or she does, so let's go ask them. Are we open to things not always going our way? This is what it takes for unity in the church, this humility. I mean, listen, if, if a church is to remain unified around the gospel, it's going to require you and me being okay when things don't go our way. We would all be served well, self-included. We would all be served well to prepare our hearts right now for the day that's likely to come when you and I will be told no in the church. Or we're not going to do it like that. Or I don't think that's the best way. Or not right now. Or maybe this area is not where you're gifted. But maybe you're, you're gifted in this area in the church. These are hard things to consider. Will we be humble enough when things don't go our way or the way we think they should go? Will we be humble enough to, to not take our ball and go home? But to stay, to count others as more significant than ourselves and to remain unified in the church. People who aren't able to do that. People who are willing to put a stake in the ground or they're willing to draw the line in the sand in order to have it their way or no way. We should have no hesitation in saying to them, we love you, but this church may not be for you. We have to be intentionally giving effort to guard the unity 
by being humble and considering others above ourselves. Third, we pursue humility by looking after the interest of others. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to your, his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul isn't commanding that you look after yourself. He knows that you'll naturally do that. I mean, chances are you had breakfast, you're going to have lunch, you're going to have dinner. You're, you naturally look after yourself. Instead, he's arguing with the same intensity that you care for your own interest, do that for others. And notice the progression of intensities in, these, in the points. First, he says, take the focus off yourself. Don't do selfish ambition. Take the focus off yourself. Second point, he says, focus on others. And now third, work for others. Not only think about others first, but now work for their interest. When I first came here as interim pastor, one of the first people I met with was Matt, our former youth pastor now whose last week was last week. And you all know the fantastic job he did in the transition. And I share this story with you now because he's not here. If he was here, I wouldn't be able to share the story. But I think it's a good model of humility that we can learn from. One of the first people I met when I first came was with Matt as a fellow staff member. And Matt came in the office, he sat down... And he said, look, I want to do whatever will help you transition the most. I want to do whatever I can to help you succeed. He said, I want to do whatever I can to make you look good. And that's humbling. Like, I didn't expect that from him. I don't expect that from anyone. But you can hear in his heart. And he would blush if he heard me tell you that. You can hear in his heart, I want to look after your interest. I want to look after for what concerns you. He could have been bitter or cold or distant, but instead, in humility, he sought to look after my interest. And what if we all had that attitude to look after the interest of others and each other? What if we operated like a church, which, by the way, I've sensed a lot around here. And Matt's not the only story that I could tell like that. He's just the one that's not here, so I can share it. But what if that was the culture of our church? To say, my purpose is not to look after my interest or what I want, but my purpose is to look after other people's interests. Not only will I think of you, I'm going to work for you in your interest. And this is, side note, this is how marriage works. You have two people what if both people are grumbling, complaining about, oh, she's not meeting my needs and he's not meeting my wants. And, but what if instead both people said, my purpose is going to serve the other purpose, per, person and in doing so, both people are being served. This is the same in the church. Church filled with individuals with no time to be consumed with ourselves. We look for the interest of others. Fourth and finally, we pursue humility by remembering the example of Christ. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This has become a popular passage throughout history of detailing the person, nature, and work of Christ. I mean, this is a wonderful example of the Christology of Christ where we learn about who he is and what his nature is and his purpose. But Paul wrote these texts right here, these verses, primarily as an example of humility. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, remember the humility of Jesus. And then he gives this beautiful timeline of what Jesus did and his humility in, in that timeline. And just consider it briefly with me. First, Jesus was humble in that he willingly became a man. Verse 6 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now notice that before all time, Jesus was in the form of God and equal with God. He was these things because Jesus is God. Before Jesus came as a man, Jesus existed as God. But notice that verse 6 says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, He willingly came as a man. He didn't cling to His divinity to avoid humanity. He didn't say, well, I'm too big to be a human. He didn't grasp His status and His position to forcefully prevent Himself from becoming a human. Instead, he willingly became a man. The God of the universe became a man. Second, Jesus was humble in that he emptied himself by taking on servanthood. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now this verse has been debated throughout the centuries. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? People in the past have come up with heresies that, that have said... Well, Jesus emptied himself because he, he emptied all of his godlike attributes to become a man. Or he emptied by pouring out all of his divinity to become a man. And this is not what he's saying at all. Some translations say that he became nothing. This is a very important text here. It tells us about Jesus and who he is. So we should be careful with how we understand it and translate it and interpret it. Did Jesus let go of his divinity when he became a man? Did Jesus stop being God when he became a man? The answer is no. One of the main purposes of the gospel accounts is to show that Jesus wasn't simply a man, but that Jesus is God. Colossians 1.19 says this, In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the person of Jesus. So when Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God. And so what does it mean when it says he emptied himself? When you empty something, you, you pour something out or you take something out or you take something away. But that's not what happened with Jesus. Notice that the text says he emptied himself by what? Pouring out his divine attributes? No. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by adding something. This was an emptying, by sub, not by subtraction. This was an emptying by addition. And I know this is theological in nature, but this is important. In other words, Jesus gave up his status and his position 
on the divine throne of God and he became a servant to man. God is the one who is high, lifted up. We should be the ones bowing down in service to him. And yet Jesus emptied himself by stepping off of that throne and stooping low to become a servant in humility. Third, Jesus was humble in that he identified with man. Look at verse 7. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. The other night I was cleaning the kitchen after dinner and I asked Delaney to get a scrap piece of food off the table, throw it away in the trash. Now Delaney is my dainty, cautious, likes to stay clean uh, girl and she said, but daddy, that's, that's not my food. I said, I know, it's okay, you can serve others. That's what Jesus did for us. She said, but yeah, Jesus didn't have to serve us in a yucky way. But in fact, he kind of did. Jesus, as God, holy and exalted above creation, humbled himself by becoming a baby inside of a sinner's womb in Mary, was born in a dirty stable, lived among evil sinners, and walked in a fallen world. The God of the universe did that. All of which he did while remaining sinless. All of which he did while remaining God. I mean, have you seen how dirty and cruel our world is? Talk about a yucky service. Leaving the exalted throne of God. Taking on human flesh. Walking among sinful people. What an extraordinary model of humility. Jesus identified with man in becoming man. And fourth and finally... Jesus was humble in that he sacrificed himself for sinners. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just let that sink in for a moment. God died. God died. The one who always existed. There was never a time where Jesus wasn't. He always was. The one who created life died. The one who gives life died. The one who sustains life died. And he didn't just die a simple death. Like an agreement was made like, okay, Father, I'll go to earth as long as when I die. It'll be quick, simple, painless. No. Verse 8 says... He died to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like, can you believe it? Like, death on a cross, the most excruciating way to die at that time. Reserved for the most heinous criminals. If you're an unbeliever today, here, maybe you're on the fringe of what you believe, this is the God of the Bible. All the other so-called gods of the world sit elevated in their pedestals as their minions try to reach them. But the God of Christianity says, you don't have to reach me, I'm going to come to you. Not only am I going to come to you, I'm going to die for you. This is what Jesus did. He, he came for us, he died for us to take the punishment of our sin. And he died in the most shameful way. Because that's what we deserved for living a life 
filled with sin and rebellion against God. Listen to the shameful death of crucifixions from, a wor- from the words of one historian. He says, quote, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, the unnatural person made every unnatural position made every moment painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The body hanging in anguish causing the person to suffocate. And when he stretched his legs to straighten his torso to breathe, it only put more pressure on the stakes in his feet, causing him to drop again in pain, which tugged at the stakes in his hands. The God of Christianity doesn't say, Come up to me, all you sinners. The God of Christianity humbled himself and came down for you and died in your place. Would you trust in Jesus today? You can be forgiven of your sins right now. If you would cry out to God and say, God, please forgive me of my sin, my sinful nature. I am trusting that what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection is sufficient to pay my debt. And he will forgive you and he will save you in this moment. Paul says, remember the humility of Jesus. Follow his example. And I'll close with this. Jesus modeled the greatest humility for us all to follow. And notice the result. The last verses of chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died but he didn't stay dead. He conquered death for all who would trust in him. He rose from the grave and now he sits on the throne of God. And one day everyone will bow before him and confess you are Lord. And better to do that now in joy than to do it then in regret. This result of humility is exaltation. Yes, Jesus stepped off the throne, but now he is high and lifted up and has the name above every name. Jesus will always have the highest seat of honor and worship. God has exalted him above every name, but we, listen church, this is the good news. We who are in him will share in that glory. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 14 about the humble. Luke 14, 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, when you practice humility now, when you practice humility in the church, 
You may think that no one ever notices, no one ever cares. I'm doing this and no one's giving me any recognition. And that's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. It's exactly how it's supposed to be. You may think it doesn't even matter. No one even notices. And I can tell you from God's word on his authority, God sees and God notices and God promises for the humble, he will exalt you. We can live in humility now because one day Christ will exalt you and say, well done, good and faithful, what is it? Servant. Not good and faithful leader. Not good and faithful anything. Good and faithful servant. Let us humbly serve one another. Let's pray. Oh God, there should be no spirit of boasting in any of us. What do we have that we have not been given, your word says. So Lord, I pray that you will create in us a spirit of humility. A spirit that considers others before ourselves. Who take the interest of others before our own. Create a spirit in us that sacrifice, sacrifices for one another in service. And in our humility and love for one another, unite us as a church. Lead us in your path of humility. And may our eyes always be fixed upon you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a a moment of reflection. First, you're going to sit while Jason and the team plays to reflect upon the truth of God's word. What has God called you to specifically today? Maybe it's, you know, asking forgiveness from someone that you've been arrogant or prideful toward. Or maybe if you're not a believer, maybe it's you humbling yourself now and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Whatever the case is, I'm going to be here. And as we stand and worship in a moment, I would invite you to respond however the Lord leads you in this time. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.